Welcome to From the Back Tees, a podcast where we tee it up from the back every week. This is Tucker Booth back here with the Rappers Don't Golf podcast for FromTheBackTees.com. Got another amazing golf journalist guest with me today. Bob Herrig is senior golf writer for ESPN.com and has been covering the game for more than 25 years. First at the St. Petersburg Times in Florida and then for ESPN.com. He's also been a contributor for Golf Digest as well. He began contributing to ESPN.com in 1997. He's also covered college football for the Times. Herrig, a native of Barrington, Illinois, got his first exposure to golf as a caddy at Inverness Golf Club, where he earned an Evans scholarship to attend Indiana University, and he graduated with degrees in journalism and history. I'm sure you've seen him plenty of times if you're watching ESPN, and his articles are all over the internet. Very pleased to have Bob Herrick with me today. Bob, how you doing, sir? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Well, I know you're uh, you're grabbing lunch and stuff. So you know, when you get uh, done with yours, do you think you can order me a diet coke as well? I'd love one too, please. <laughs> <laughs> it's a New Year's resolution to to not have as many of these, but uh, I'm not. I'm failing so far. Yeah, I tried to say I was going to give up coffee, but uh, I think I'm on my third cup of the morning. So I feel your pain there, bud. <laughs> Well, okay, so let's get into it, Bob. Um, I'm fascinated by the people behind the scenes in golf journalism, and, and I've talked with many folks like yourself recently. So my first question I always like to ask is, let's get in the time machine, Bob. Take me back to when you first knew that you had a love or a passion for golf as a child, and let's kind of go from there. How did you get into golf? Where was your first exposure to it, and how did you fall in love with it? summarized it there a second ago, I, I started out as a caddy, and uh, actually when I did that, I had no, no knowledge of golf. Um, I mean, I didn't know the rules. I, I just, like a friend of mine started caddying, and he told me about it, and there was this really nice country club near where I grew up, and I went there and, you know, decided I want, I was like 12, 12 years old, 13, I think, and I think you had to be 13 to do it, actually. I was 12. I cheated for about three months. <laughs> and they, um, they, you know, they taught you how to caddy, and I learned how to caddy. And then learning how to caddy meant you had to learn the rules, you had to learn the etiquette. Really, that's the main thing is the etiquette. As a caddy, you really learn, you know, like fixing ball marks and where to stand and not to stand in somebody's line and all these little things that now, as a golfer, you just take for granted but that are, are you know, pretty important. And as I got into that, I started to play like they had the opportunity for caddies to play on Mondays at this club. That's how I started playing. And, you know, it sort of evolved. I ended up caddying for like 10 years. I did it from that time all the way through high school and into college. And um, as you noted, there was a caddy scholarship involved, which is a big part of my life to, to have gotten that. And uh, But that's where it all started. I mean, like, no, nobody in my family was a golfer, really. And you know, I was a big sports fan, so I might have been aware of golf, like watching it a little bit here and there. But that's really how I got how I got started and how I got into golf. And it's somewhat ironic, I think, that it ended up becoming my career. Um, you know, but 
it, it probably wouldn't have been if it weren't for all of that background. So that's interesting. And I, I've talked to others that said that caddying was kind of their first real dose of golf and kind of gave them that passion for, for that. And also for kind of being behind the ropes and behind the scenes, w- watching others that were better than them as well. Uh, give, give us a little bit, of, maybe a caddy anecdote or two about some of the things that kind of really impressed you being in that position and, and kind of gave you that desire to kind of pursue it further. I mean, there's a lot of interesting things about being a caddy. I mean, you you, you get a lot of life lessons quickly, uh, and some of them are probably not the most positive. I mean, uh, you know, my vocabulary increased tenfold uh, when you're 13, 14 years old on a golf course and hearing things for the first time. Um, you know, you come, you come across a lot of successful people. Uh, you know, because you're, you're, you're at a country club, obviously these people are members, they've got to have some level of success to be able to afford it. Even, you know, having a caddy is not uh, a real affordable thing. You know, it's, it's expensive, you know, it's exp- much more expensive than taking a golf cart. So, you know, you, you come in contact with these successful people, not all great people, but successful people. Uh, and so... You know, but but I just I, I remember I had a guy that I caddied for a lot. He liked me, and he took me under his wing, and he kind of wanted me to caddy for him whenever he was there. And you know, we developed this this relationship uh, uh, because of that. You know, he, he wasn't like a father figure, but he was maybe like a much 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 older brother figure, and that was really cool. And I got and I really learned golf um, strongly through him because he was a good player, and I had to learn his game and. And, uh, you know, I, I had to learn the golf course that I caddied on. Of course, you know, I probably caddied a thousand rounds there over the years, maybe even more. Um, but, you know, it just, how it affected my career, I'm not, I'm not so sure that it did that much in, in that I, at some point I knew I wanted to go into journalism, uh, and golf didn't have to be part of it. It's funny that it worked out that way. Uh, but I certainly think that it made it so much easier for me to dive into golf because of that background. I mean, uh, I knew the game very, very well. I understood it um, because of that, uh, because of those experiences, having caddied and then played. I mean, I just was on a golf course so often in my youth that uh, it couldn't help but translate to some level of knowledge. So, okay, let's let's flash forward now to being on the Evans scholarship uh and and being in college and and knowing now that you're kind of honing your craft and and you know where you're pointed at and you want to be in journalism like you said it didn't have to be golf but you definitely knew you wanted to be a journalist what was that experience like especially because that's a pretty prestigious honor that was bestowed upon you with that scholarship was the pressure a lot to contend with trying to live up to those expectations for yourself or for others and what was it like in that scenario if if the listener out there is someone that's considering going into these things maybe a young up-and-comer that wants to be in journalism what were some of the lessons you learned during that period of your collegiate career well, first of all, having an Evans scholarship is life changing in that it's, you know, it's a four year scholarship. You know, my, tu- I went to Indiana and it was four years of paid tuition at, at a, at a pretty good school that I really wanted to go to. I grew up in Chicago and decided I wanted to go to IU because of their journalism program. Um, you know, really liked it. And then, wow, you get your, your tuition paid for. I mean, it was a huge boon to my parents who, 
they were going to help me find a way to go to college one way or the other. But, uh, uh, you know, it wasn't going to be easy. And it made it a lot easier for my sister and brother who since went out, who went on to college after me that that, that was taken care of. Now, once there, you, you live in a house with a bunch of, which, with a bunch of other caddies, guys who did the same thing that you did. They got this seven scholarship, and it was quite the eclectic group. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, and uh, lifetime friendships were formed because of it. You know, I, I lived with these guys in different years for four years, you know. And um, so that part of it was will always will always be there. It, he's just never going to – you're never going to forget those, those memories. Now, as far as the journalism part, um, I worked on the school paper all four years I was there. I, I knew I was going to be majoring in journalism. I sort of had it in my mind that – you know, that was the career that I wanted, and uh, uh, you know, I went to a I went to a school that, that, that helped facilitate that great journalism program, and also good sports, good sports programs to cover. Uh, covering Indiana basketball is is a is a is a treat for somebody who's 19 years old. Uh, that experience was, um, you know, you just you can't repeat it, you can't duplicate that. I mean, no textbook is going to teach you how to deal with covering uh, the Indiana basketball team, and at that time, Bobby Knight, the coach, and, 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 and all that goes with that. So um, it's, uh, you know, it's kind of interesting how it all worked out. And, and then, you know, you move into your career, and, and one thing leads to another, and here all these years later, I'm, I'm covering golf, and it's my main thing. So any great Bobby Knight stories for us, Bob? I know Bobby Knight probably has a million great Bobby Knight stories. Any that pertain directly to you? Well, he was a he was a tough guy to deal with, especially for a student journalist. Um, I always look back on this and wonder why he acted the way he did. Um, anybody who's familiar with Knight knows he was a very volatile personality, um, disdained the media to a great degree. Um, but a student reporter would be somebody that he would have a chance to maybe sort of, you know, mold to his liking because you don't know any better. And instead, he more, more or less blew us off. <laughs> uh, and, and, and so, like, if you'd ask him a question, he would either ignore it or he'd belittle you or he would disparage. He was, he was tough. I mean, it was tough to deal with that kind of, that kind of behavior. But, it, you know, in a way, it was good. It toughened you up. You know, he, he, he had, to, you had to develop thick skin. And so, um, yeah, I, I recall one time I was in, when I was a in, summer intern uh, somewhere else, uh, I, I had some dealings with him where I had contacted him in advance uh, to, to get an interview, and he couldn't have been better about that. Like so, like he had these weird sides about about him. You know, he wasn't easy to deal with during the interview, but the fact that he allowed me to do it showed a different side of him. You know, he knew who I was, and uh, and funny years later, I went back to IU when I was working at the St. Pete Times to do a story on Indiana basketball, and I, and I met up with him. And, and you know, he, he knew then he had a much harder time sort of, you know, being a bully, you know, because you're not going to take it. You know, like he, when he tried to pull some of that stuff, you know, you push back a little bit. You've learned your lessons, and, um, I'll, you know, I always remember that. He was an amazing coach, uh, and, and, but great. It was it was great experience to deal with somebody like that because it probably I'd have a hard time saying you deal with anybody in sports that was harder to deal with than him. 
Yeah, it sounds like you had the toughest sparring partner right off the bat. That actually sounds like a pretty good thing to toughen you up and get a thick skin for what was to come. Well, okay, so let's let's move on. What was your first big break when you were done with school where you finally got your foot in the door with media in a broader context and kind of set you on the path to where you've gotten to now? Um, well, I after uh, after getting out of college, I, I worked in Cincinnati for a six-month postgraduate internship. And then I, um, in, in, in Florida, the St. Petersburg Times, they have this kind of pipeline with Indiana. They, they used to recruit a lot of IU journalism grads. There was, there was sort of a connection there. The guy who was the longtime owner of the St. Petersburg Times, Nelson Pointer, had gone to Indiana, and he had this connection. And so there was a lot of IU people there already. And so I, I knew people. I knew, the, I knew the ins and outs, and it just sort of um, – you know, worked out that among the places I interviewed was was there, and um, you know, so just getting in the door there, I'd say, was a break uh, because you got to start somewhere, right? You've got to have you've got to have a uh, an entrance and, and the ability to to have opportunities, and 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 then early on, um, I was a I was a really young guy, not probably deserving of what I got at the time, but I I got. Um, they gave me the Florida State uh, College beat, and that's huge in Florida, obviously. And at the time, so you know, actually, for people who who know, I went from Bobby Knight basically to Bobby Bowden. I went from one of the toughest people to deal with ever to one of the nicest. And Florida State football, of course, was huge. It still is. It's you know, obviously a state school, and 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 very very successful. And I covered them when they won some national. Ch- championships and they hardly ever lost and and it was a big it was a big deal to get that opportunity because um that was a very high profile beat and along the way i also was covering golf and so sort of i had my foot in the door with golf too and uh, but i mean that was a huge break it was a it was a um you learn a lot covering a team beat like that writing on deadline writing features making contacts all the things that you use in any form of journalism, I got thrown right into it and, and had, to, had to kind of figure it out quickly. Yeah, that sounds like an amazing opportunity. Obviously, legendary program there with the Seminoles as well. So you mentioned that you were covering golf as well for the St. Petersburg Times. What, was, what were some of your early memories of kind of getting that opportunity to cover golf? And kind of where did you begin historically in the pro golf or, or just the golf timeline in general for our listeners? Give us some of the early memories from golf. Yeah, well, I mean... At 23 years old, I got sent to my first Masters. And talk about an eye-opening um, experience that was, you know. Uh, it's it just, it was overwhelming, right? And and I haven't missed too many since, I don't think. You know, I've been to 100-plus majors, I think, probably. And getting the experience of covering them at a young age um, uh, was, was invaluable. And, you know, I... I got to see some incredible stuff along the way, obviously. I mean, I was, I was at um, the last major championship that Jack Nicklaus played of all four. 
You know, I mean, so like he was before my time. I came after Jack really was was competitive, but I was lucky enough to get to cover him playing in real tournaments. And you know, he, I covered some of his senior golf too. But you know, I was he was I was at his last British Open at St Andrews in 2005, which was you know 15 years ago now. Um, I was at Tiger's first Masters win in '97. Uh, in fact, I've been at all 15 of his majors. So, like, that's sort of, like, you know, how, how far back I go. Uh, I was around for Greg Norman losing to, to Faldo at the Masters in 96. Um, so, you know, I, I've, I've, I've been fortunate enough to, like, I've almost overlapped the eras. You know, I, was a, I wasn't there for any of Jack's wins on the PGA Tour. I came after that. But I was around at a time when he was still very relevant as a player into his 50s. And uh, so, you know, and obviously Arnold Palmer as well was, was still a force, you know, in terms of his name recognition and everything. So I got to go from that, you know, into the Greg Norman Faldo era, era and then into the Tiger Phil era, you know. So I've been very fortunate, uh, you know, how that, how that has all worked out. And now, of course, we've got these younger guys that have come up, like Rory and Jordan Spieth and Justin Thomas and Kepka, um, you know, so it's, it's been it's been a, a very I think a very fortunate time period for me of where is where I've been. Well, and Bob, I've been digging on you online, and it seems to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, that you are one of the foremost experts on the Tiger Woods era. Like you said, you've been there pretty much since the genesis of Tiger's greatness. Uh, would that be a stretch to say you're one of the experts, or or am I giving you the proper praise there? Yeah, I don't know about that. I mean, you know, I certainly feel like I know him as well as anybody. Um, I feel that, you know, I've been around for all of it. I've been through all the ups and downs. Um, I, I, I try I've to figure out how many of his wins I've been to. I think I counted 44 of the 80, of the 82, you know, so a little more than half. You know, when I was at the St. Pete Times, I didn't go to all the tournaments he played. I got to the, you know, I covered a good bit of golf back then, uh, but I was, you know, it was mostly the majors and the Florida events, you know, 10, 10 12 tournaments a year tops. Uh, now, obviously, it's double that. Uh, but, um, uh, yeah, I, I sort of feel like, you know, and, and obviously, given his stature and, and how important he's been in the game, how popular he was, um, it just behooved me to have to get to know all, all about him. You know, and so uh, that that just became part of the job. I mean, you're not going to do this if you don't become an expert on Tiger, I suppose. So let's go back to the 97 Masters when Tiger had his first major breakthrough win. What was that like being there for that? I mean, I imagine that it obviously was electric, but maybe let's compare it. Give us a little bit of 97 and then give us a little bit of last year's Masters when he finally had his unbelievable comeback. What were those two like kind of compare and contrast a little bit? Well, 97 was, um, you know, what it was historic in its own way. You know, first of all, Tiger had a lot of hype um, in, in 90. Six when he actually missed the cut at the Masters, the only time he's done so, by the way, he missed the cut as an amateur, that's when Nicholas said he's going to win as many Masters as myself and Arnold combined, which, of course, was 10. <laughs> and, you know, it, it, 
he, he, I don't think he meant it like literally. He just was talking about this is the kind of talent this guy has, and 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 how well suited he is for the golf course. And so in '97, you know, he had off. Tiger had won three times. He came out in '96, turned pro, won won two of his first seven starts, and it, it was off the charts. Tiger mania. It was. I mean. I don't think it's really subsided. It's just different. Back then, it was wild how crazy things were. And he was a young guy who always didn't handle it the best. Um, you know, that's maybe the big difference to now. You know, he, there's, there's, a, there's a humbleness and an, appreci- an appreciation that he has now that I don't think he had back then. But what I remember about 97, obviously, was, you know, he ran away with that thing. He shot 40 on the first nine and then ended up shooting 30 on the back nine to shoot 70, and he was a couple of strokes back. But everybody had this sense, man, he might win this thing. And then he just kept going. You know, the next day he played with Paul Azinger, and he shot a low score, and he got the lead. And then he played with Monty in the third round and dusted him. And he had a nine-shot lead going into the final round. And so the final round was a coronation. It was... You know, he's going to win. What does this mean? You know, the first person of color to win at Augusta National that had had this sort of sketchy, you know, racial past. You know, there was all those issues. You know, back then, they still had an all-African-American staff, weight staff, um, their caddies who weren't in the tournament, all the people who worked in the club. So there was that dynamic back then. Lee Elder, who was the first black golfer to play in the, the Masters, he flew to Augusta that morning to be there for it. I mean, it was, you know, it was historic from those from that standpoint. We knew he was going to win, and you had the racial, cultural part of it. And then, of course, he wins by 12, which was a record. So, um, you know, that was, that was a big difference from last year when Tiger was uh, obviously, you know, a different player going up against guys 20 years 15 years younger than him, guys who had more power. Uh, he had to think his way around. He, he had to come from behind. Uh, he wasn't overpowering. Um, and yet he found a way to get it done with his moxie, you know, with his guile. He, he plotted his way around on Sunday beautifully. And, uh, and obviously the scene from 97 when he's hugging his dad behind the green, his dad had had such a big influence on his career, has since passed away. And then it, he's there with his kids, um, you know, uh, behind the green. It's, um, you know, it was a pretty neat, a, a pretty neat contrast uh, to, you know, to 21 years earlier. Yeah, no kidding. I think that was one of the most touching things for a fan like myself and for a father like myself to see him going from hugging his dad to hugging his son and seeing that that kind of changing of the guard there for him emotionally and, and personally. I got one more question kind of pertaining to the racial components that you brought up. I was going to ask this anyway. It seems like Augusta specifically, but we can just say golf in general, seems to still have this perception that it's an older white male sport and that minorities and international players are now included in it, but maybe kind of somewhat like tennis, it still seems to be dominated by white folks. Tiger obviously has helped to change that perception. From your vantage point, how far along has golf come 
since, say, 97 in regard to helping change that perception? Because it seems like Augusta still manages to take this on the chin and also do everything they can to put up a shield around themselves so they don't have to even answer these questions. But, you know, as a journalist, have you seen the game grow culturally more than, say, the average armchair critic watching it at home? Well, it certainly has grown culturally since then, uh, but it's slow. Uh, and golf has been really the slowest at social change. I mean, the fact that, you know, it wasn't that long ago we were still talking about the idea of having women members at Augusta. Um, you know, they were, you know, the RNA, it, 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 you know, also, same thing. You know, clubs in the UK that host the Open. Um, it's just taken a while to get to the point where um, they've been more inclusive. You know, and I always, I always differentiate. A club has every right to do what it wants in terms of its membership. I have no problem with that. It's just that when you're part of the bigger picture and you're hosting these big events where you, are, where you welcome in everybody, you know, to pay to come in and watch, and you expect all kinds of different people from all cultures, races, whatever, to watch on TV to help pay the bills with advertisers, to not then extend that in your own membership seems a little, you know, it just it, it, it's, it's a little two-faced. And that's why I think there was all that pressure. Um, has it gotten better? Absolutely. Has Tiger's emergence helped minority golf? I don't think anywhere near as much as people thought. You know, the game still has the, the, the same issues that have been there for decades, and that is it's really expensive to play. Um, it's time-consuming. Uh, and, you, you know, you need the means. And not everybody has the means. It doesn't matter what ethnic background you are or what, you know, what race you are. You've got to be able to ha- – you've got to have the money to be able to put in the time to practice, play golf, buy equipment, buy the clothes. And you know, that's, not everybody can afford it, and that's unfortunate. It's unfortunate that we don't have more programs – that um, that help in that regard. Obviously, the first tee is a huge one that's come along since Tiger started. Uh, you know that has afforded opportunities to people that don't have have the means as much. But I think you know in developing players, like developing high level players, we don't really have that. Other countries do. You know they try to develop players for the Olympics, and they they use state money to to help develop. You know they identify people. We don't do that. Our top players come through academies, the, the American Junior Golf Association, which is not cheap to play. You have to travel. Um, you know, unless you can get a college scholarship, well, how are you going to do that? You have to be noticed. You have to, you, you have to play some high level of golf somewhere to be noticed. And that is, you well, know, means you're going to have to travel probably and play in tournaments. So we're still, we're still not there in that, in that regard, I don't think. And, I'm not sure what the answer is exactly. It's hard. Um, you know, Tiger's spoken about this many times. You know, he said, he said, look, you know, getting people to play golf and, and having the money to do it is not an easy thing. There's, there's other options. It's, it's, it's relatively inexpensive to, to bounce a basketball or to, to kick a soccer ball, you know, compare, certainly compared to golf. And, uh, and so there's other options for kids when they're younger uh, and, if, and if money is, is an impediment, well, then they go the, the cheaper route. And so you lose some possible people that might have been really good at golf because they just didn't have the means. 
Yeah, that makes sense. I kind of wondered, just thinking out loud, much kind of like the Williams sisters were supposed to make this huge impact on minority tennis, and it doesn't seem like there have been that many to come out following them, although Coco Goff and Sloane Stevens, and there are examples of it. Uh, would a young African-American with a little bit more flavor, for lack of a better term, somebody that's not quite as vanilla and buttoned up as Tiger, someone that's a little bit more uh, outspoken, a little more political, a little more edgy, a little more hip-hop, do you think that would actually inspire black golfers to get involved? Or do you think that this is a bigger cultural issue than just having someone to emulate that is more to their liking? You know, it, it wouldn't hurt. I don't think. Uh, I, I think it would help if there were more numbers. Like right now, the only other African American player on the PGA Tour of any note is Harold Barner. You know, who's fully exempt, and he's he's off to a nice start in his career, but he hasn't won yet. Uh, he won a European Tour event actually, but he hasn't won on the PGA Tour. Like so, if, if you're a young african-american kid and you're looking for role models and it's just tiger and then this guy who's not really done a whole lot and you're like, god the odds are so against me you know that i'm not sure the personality is is the issue there as much as it is having numbers having you know having seeing success from a bunch of people like for example if you're a young golfer in australia and you see that a country that is relatively small numbers wise has been able to produce so many top level golfers that, that have, that have played across the world. You know, at any one time, there might be what, 12, 15, 18 Aussies playing on the PJ tour. You go, wow, there's a chance. I, I can come from a small group like this and make it. You know, it's, I don't think it's been the same way for, for minority golfers, especially in the U.S. They just don't see the role models, whether no matter their personality and how they carry themselves. Tiger became a, a, um, a hero to all golfers. It didn't matter. As it, it turns out, I think, it didn't matter what the color of his skin was. I mean, these guys today, you know, uh, Justin Thomas and Kepka, they all talk about they idolized him. You know, they wanted to try to be like him. So what if anything, he has just—he has produced golfers. He's produced, helped produce fit golfers, guys you saw being in shape and being being an athlete is being important to, be, to playing good golf. That has been more his legacy than the, than the minority side of things. I got one more Tiger question for you because I, I feel like I'm remiss not to ask these questions. You mentioned that you were there kind of for the very end of the Jack Nicholas era and the very beginning of the Tiger era. And the obvious question, low-hanging fruit question, what are your feelings about Tiger's chances to surpass the Nicholas major record? And follow-up question, even if he were to not surpass the 18 major wins by Nicholas, would that be the deal breaker for being able to call him the greatest of all time or simply by tying the Sneed record, winning the unprecedented 15th after everyone pretty much wrote him off for dead? Would that be enough right there if he got to 83 and 15? Or does he have to get to 19 before everyone finally crowns him the GOAT? Well, as far as getting there, I think it's going to be really hard. I mean, you know, it's a shame. Ten years lost. 
You know, the fact that he didn't get a single one during that time. You know, if he had gotten one or two and gotten closer, now then he'd say, okay. I mean, the idea of him winning three more tournaments, five more tournaments total, I think, is a lot. He's, he's 44 years old. I mean, he's going to have his weeks where he doesn't have it. He's never going to be as consistent as he was before. Look, I don't put it past him. I would never say never. I think we're foolish to do that. But I think to get to 18 or 19 is a lot to ask. And yet, I don't find that slighting him at all. Let's say he wins one more major and he gets to, say, 86, 87, 88 wins. Could you say that career is better than Jack's? Absolutely. I mean, I could easily make that argument. First of all, you know, Jack won uh, 73. So let's say Tiger got to 85. He would have surpassed him by 12 during a time when it was much harder to win. Um, you know, Jack, Jack won his 18 majors when there wasn't as much competition. Yes, you might say there was higher, much more higher-end competition, but I think that's because those were the only guys who were really competitive. If you look back to Jack's career, there were very few times that he beat somebody – who wasn't a, you know, who was sort of a flukish guy, or a flukish guy beat him. In fact, off the top of my head, Charles Cootie might be the most obscure name Jack ever finished second to. And that was at the Masters, I think, in 1971. You know, Jack's runner-up finishes were to Hall of Famers. Uh, you know, Gary Player, or, you know, Arnie, or, or you know, he, he lost, he's, the only time he lost a playoff in a major was to Lee Trevino. He finished second to Trevino four times in majors. Finished second to Tom Watson. Those, you know, those are Hall of Fame players. Tiger has had more depth to deal with. Um, Y.E. Yang, uh, Rich Beam, uh, uh, Michael Campbell. Those guys never won on tour after they beat Tiger in a major. Now, I, I, say, I think that has more to do with the fact that there's more depth, that a guy from their level of play could come up and win a major. There were less guys who could do that in Jack's era. So that's why I can make the argument for Tiger. He doesn't have as many, but uh, uh, yet I think he, he faced a tougher time to try to get it done. He had to face more, he had to face more guys who came out of nowhere. Um, one of my favorite stats about Jack is, is his run at the at the British Open, where from like 1964 or so through 1979, what a 15-16 year period, he never finished worse than 12, and and like most of them were top 10. I mean, like he was he was out of the top 10 once in 15 years. It's a phenomenal record. But the other side of it is that the depth of that tournament during that time was not was nothing like it is today. There was, there's probably only 30 or 40 players who could win. You know, whereas today at the British Open, 80 of those guys could win. So my long-winded point here is this Tiger, I think, has had to face better competition. You can make the argument now that Brooks Kepka and Rory are having to face tougher competition than Tiger did 20 years ago. I think that's just how it, how it works out. And so to make the argument about Jack over Tiger, I think you, you can argue it either way. I don't think there's a wrong answer. But I certainly think that there's a compelling one to be made for Tiger over Jack when you, when you put it all together.
So I'm sure the answer to this next question is, well, of course it's possible, but I'm asking you more relatively. Do you ever think anybody comes along that surpasses the number of career wins total that Tiger is going to end up with? Anybody will get to Phil. Uh, and that's 44. Um, you know, uh, it's just, um, it's just so hard. I mean, I, again, we, a lot of things with Tiger we take for granted. Um, the, the number of wins, you know, the number of made cuts in a row streak that he had, you know, the scoring average stuff that he's done. Um, they, there's so much money in the game today, too, that I think it might be hard for guys to stay motivated. Um, you know, how, how are you going to ever have the drive and desire to, be, to work that hard to win 40 times? Dustin Johnson has won 20, and that's remarkable. I think how many that he's, that he's kind of let get away. He could probably have 25 or 28 wins by now. But, I mean, like, if he were to get to 30, that would be incredible. Um, and I just, I just think it's hard. I mean, look, he's already 35 years old. It's, it's, um, uh, uh, J- Justin Thomas just won his 12th tournament, okay? He's only 26. Um, let's say in the next five years he doubles that, he's still only at 24. And that would be incredible if he doubled it, really, in five years. To win, to win 12 tournaments over five years? That's a lot, you know? So I think it's going to be very, very difficult. I think Tiger, forget about it. I think getting to Phil is going to be really hard. Yeah, that's a good point. I kind of was thinking the same thing myself. So you've mentioned some of these new guys, and I was going to get there. These last couple of months on the PGA Tour, in my estimate, have been some of the most exciting kind of preseason months, if you will, because I know it's a year wraparound schedule now, but it used to be that the fall was kind of when all the people were kind of biting and scratching just to get into the mix. This fall has been must-see TV on many weeks, as far as I can see, watching these tournaments. Tiger obviously winning Zozo, some of the really exciting tournaments with Cameron Champ taking Safeway, and now moving on into the Christmas months with the Hero World Challenge being something that actually was was much watched and also had a lot of controversy that kind of sparked from it. I guess let's start with give me your own estimate about has this fall season helped kind of rejuvenate the golf world's interest in golf? Because it seems like people have been buzzing about it way more than the last few years before. Yeah, it's a really good question. I'm not I'm not sure because I'm so close to it. Um, you know, is it making, is there more of a buzz among the, uh, hardcore fans of golf? Probably. I think the fall was really good. You know, Justin, you know, Thomas won, Tiger won, Rory won, uh, as you mentioned, Cameron Champ won, uh, you know, the Brendan Todd story was really good, uh, you know, winning twice and contending a third time, um. But, you know, does, does, it, does that make a mark among the masses, you know, among the casual fan? You know, I think the casual fan still sort of equates the start of golf with, uh, you know, we're sort of just stretching our legs here in January. They see the beautiful pictures from Hawaii for the first couple of weeks, then Palm Springs, you know, the tour goes to California, and they're sort of starting to get into it. 
And, and then, you know, but for a lot of people, golf doesn't really begin until the spring, until the Masters. So will those stories carry over for the average guy? I'm not sure. Um, you know, I, I, I sense some people wake up and realize, wow, you mean, you mean uh, uh, Brendan Todd won a couple of tournaments earlier this season? I didn't know that. I mean, because the way our minds work, there's so much focus on football and other, and other things, you know, baseball, what have you, in the fall. Golf kind of gets lost a little bit, and, and it's trying hard to, to make those inroads. Um, I'm not sure that that – I'm not sure it's a bad thing if it does it. It's just how it is, you know. Sports have their seasons, and golf is more a spring-summer sport, and people will start to get into it, uh, you know, March time frame. Uh, and, then, and then, of course, by the time the Masters rolls around, the actual PGA Tour season is half over. You know, that's the, that's the irony of this new schedule. It's half the events will have been played. Uh, and yet some people are just waking up to the idea that golf is being played. So it's, it's funny. For me, I, it's, hard to, it's hard to know exactly how that, how that shakes out. And, uh, um, but I think you bring up an interesting point. There's certainly been a lot of compelling stuff that's happened in the game over the last couple of months. Well, and speaking of compelling or maybe more uh, controversial points, I had to touch on Patrick Reed, who is obviously the lightning rod du jour of the moment. And for those listeners that have been living under a rock on golf Twitter or wherever, we'll go back to the Hero World Challenge where he got caught on camera, seemingly improving his lie in a waste area that had sand in it. So this was not a bunker per se, but while doing practice swings in a waste area, it appears that he sweeped sand off his ball twice or swept sand I should say so Reed denies it he does accept the penalty that comes with being caught for doing it but says that the camera angles did him no justice and that he was not intentionally trying to get sand off of his ball or improve his lie everybody from golf analysts of note to every single golf fan online that I've seen pretty much says cheater sociopath how dare you and this has followed him now bob from the hero world challenge through the president's cup where he was mercilessly harangued by the australian fans and now all the way through the century tournament of champions which he just lost dramatically in a playoff to justin thomas where on his final putt that mattered right after it left the putter someone in the crowd yells cheater now i've seen you on twitter and i've seen that you've been covering the reactions from not just fans but even former pro golfers like chris demarco and i think the quote i attained to you was if he's getting it like this at a laid-back venue in hawaii imagine the hell that awaits him at the u.s open this year give me a little perspective on the Patrick Reed controversy as it stands, where you think it's headed, how do you think he could potentially help himself in this scenario? And then I've got a follow-up question after that. Yeah, it's really complicated with Reed because, uh, first of all, he's a bit of a polarizing figure to begin with. And, you know, he had a bit of a sketchy past when he was in college. Um, he was accused of cheating in college, uh, you know, in qualifying events. He he, he basically left the University of Georgia because his teammates weren't big fans of his. Um, you know, so he had he had some issues to deal with there that 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 have dogged him and continue to. And and so you've got that history. You know, cheating in golf is is really tough to overcome. You know, it's 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 about the worst thing that you can be accused of because 
because the game is expected to be played with honor. There are not rules officials everywhere watching you. And you have examples of guys calling rules and practices on themselves. So Patrick, I thought it sort of overcome that, that, uh, you know, you could, you could chalk that up to youth, right? And turned pro, he got married, he has kids, you know, he's matured. Uh, but the thing in the Bahamas, just look, it looks bad. It's a terrible look. No matter what he says, it looks bad. He put his club behind the ball in a, in, in a waist area and then took practice swings from there and, and, the sand kind of was brushed back as he took the practice swings. My, my contention all along is who takes a practice swing soling their club behind the ball anywhere? You always take your practice swing away from the ball. You know, and, and maybe if you're like under a tree and you want to see where the club's going to go back, if it might catch a limb or something, you might set the club behind the ball. But the, the thing is, the reason you don't take a practice swing near the ball is for fear of hitting it. You know, like you don't want to, you don't want to hit it by accident. So that looked really bad. And really, if he would have just said afterward, I see on video that looks really bad. It was not my intention to move the sand, but I could see there where people would think that it looks awful. I deserve the penalty. I accept it. I apologize. Move on. But he tried to make an excuse, and it just made it worse. You know, and uh, if given the social media climate, given the way things are today. You know, given given that um, you know there 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 is a large segment of the golf population that feels your honor on the course is everything, he was bound to face some some blowback. I contend that the PGA Tour should have come out stronger against him, and then if he if he is contrite, he has a chance to move on from it. You know, um, uh, and, and and frankly, nobody should condone heckling or yelling out like that stuff. It doesn't doesn't help matters uh you know luckily that guy who yelled on sunday uh did so uh after he had stroked the pot if that happens during the swing then that's bad nobody nobody should want that kind of thing the, the other players shouldn't be encouraging it but but the other side of it is, is the other players you know deep down they all know that that looks what, what he did looks bad and they don't like it either so it's going to be tough for reed i think uh and, you know, obviously you say, oh, well, winning cures everything. True, but if he's winning and, he, and he's in contention and there's more spotlight on him, and then these things get brought up more. Uh, I think it's a terrible spot for him to be in. Uh, I, I feel bad for him that he did not handle it better in the aftermath uh, because I, I think the, we could have moved on from it by now. Well, I seem to remember a few years back, and I can't remember which Masters it was, but there was a similar kind of issue with Tiger and an oscillating ball in rough. And the cameras caught him, caught the ball somewhat oscillating or moving slightly. He didn't mention anything about it, finished his round. And then afterwards, this was submitted to the people at Augusta, and he was penalized uh, not only for the oscillating ball, but for not reporting it on himself. And for a brief period there, people were calling Tiger a cheater. Now, I don't remember any of that coming back up in this scenario, and maybe that's because Tiger's Tiger and Patrick Reed will never, ever have the kind of mojo that Tiger has. But kind of maybe from your vantage, since you've covered all these masters, is there any similarity between what happened there and what happened with Reed at the Hero? I don't think so, because Reed's was egregious. You know, like, Reed's really looked bad. 
I think you confused a couple of things with Tiger. He had the incident at the Masters had to do with the drop. Oh, that's right. I'm, I'm that you're, you are correct. That was the drop issue. Where was and the oscillating ball? Where was that one? That was at the BMW Championship, and and he the ball like moved. You could only tell on slow motion high def video, and that rule has since been changed. Like in other words, I don't think you'd get penalized for that today because. It, you you almost could not see it unless you zeroed in on it and you and you you slow mode it. The ball barely moved. He did get penalized and he was mad about it. He felt that the ball did not change position. It was like among some twigs. You know, it was like really, really. It's, it was it was very very um, you know technical rules violation there. You're like, is he really trying to gain an advantage? He was still going to have to, like, you know, chop it out of there. He wasn't going to get some advantage by, 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 you know, in that case, by by trying to do what he was doing there. He was trying to give himself a, a good, a, you know, he was trying to, you know, see if he could play the shot. Uh, but but in, but but obviously because it's Tiger that came back on him. There was a lot of harsh criticism. Oh, you know, he should have accepted the penalty. Blah blah blah. Maybe he should have. You know, um, but. That's not the same as improving your lie, like or, or improving your line of play, like Reed is alleged to have done here. The thing at the Masters for Tiger, the whole world was watching that, and nobody but one person called in to say he might have dropped that ball in a bad spot. And only after God, how many times did we watched the video, did everybody conclude, yeah, you know what? And plus his own words, he didn't pop near enough to that spot. He got the two-shot penalty for it, too. He paid a big price. That, that might have cost him the tournament. Um, so, yeah, Tiger dealt with it, but his were far more gray areas than the thing here with Reed. And uh, that's why I think there's a big difference. Also, Tiger had an entire career of having no rules violations. It's funny, in 2013, he had four of them. You know, he also had a... He also had a uh, embedded ball issue at a tournament in Abu Dhabi that cost him two strokes, and he missed the cut. There was the Masters, of course, as you noted. There was the Players' Championship where he he uh, he he it, he had a uh, during the final round his tee shot went in the water, I believe, on the 14th hole at Sawgrass, and where he dropped was deemed to be the wrong spot after the fact. But of course, during the heat of the moment, his playing partner signed off on where he dropped. Which is what the you know that's the standard, and then of course the BMW one that you mentioned. He had four of them in one year, and um, I think among some people it hurt him, sure. Uh, but also that that one with the oscillating ball, nobody else has has a cam. I'm not excusing it, but nobody else has a camera on him like Tiger Wood in, in that situation. And man, was that a very nebulous you know moving of the ball situation, uh, and so. You know, and again, to the point, I, the rule is different now to where I'm not sure they'd call a penalty for that because you need a video to see it. So that's why I think those are big differences. With Reed, it just looks it just looks bad. And when the rules official tells you, it's good, look, it's going to be a penalty, that's when you have to kind of, okay, acknowledge it. And just come out and say, look, I realize it looks bad. I didn't think I was doing anything at the time. Um, you know, I'm really sorry. I accept the penalty. I understand why people have a problem with it. And, and just, you know, sort of, you know, beg for forgiveness rather than sort of trying to explain it. I think it goes better for you if you do that.
One final read question for you before we move on. I have some broadcaster friends that are longtime golf professionals. One of them is a golf teacher for Troy Merritt. The other one was a caddy on tour for years and caddy for many famous golfers of the past era. I put up a hot take about a week ago about Reed saying, you know, as far as what he did, I'm not condoning it, nor would I even call myself a big Patrick Reed fan. However, from a must-see TV standpoint, I don't think it's bad that not only that this happened, as far as Reed is concerned, but that now he's continuing to tear up golf courses and put himself in the final pairings at the end of these tournaments because it creates a villain for people to root against, whereas golf seems to typically be considered boring by critics. Here now we've got someone that seems to be genuinely unrepentant who also is extremely good and extremely competitive and tenacious at golf. And here he is in the final you know, playoff with Shoffley and Thomas, who I would say are considered pretty good guys by most of golf. And we've got a genuine villain to root against. These people said, how dare you? Golf is all about integrity and honor. And, you know, no one should want for a villain to be out there. And I've kind of put it out there as a poll to uh, quite a few friends that worked at Golf Channel, friends that are, you know, broadcasters of notes. So I'll ask you, Bob, do you think it's good for the PGA to have a certified villain out there to root against and will that potentially help ratings absolutely i don't think it's bad at all to have somebody that's viewed that way i mean i don't wish it upon him um i happen to appreciate his ability as a player i think i think it's a testament to him in a, in a way that he managed to play well that final day at the president's cup that he got himself into contention there at the uh um, you know, at the Tournament of Champions at Kapalua because he's got a lot going on, and he's, he's had an amazing ability to block it out. Obviously, the family situation that's been reported on many, many times, and he gets asked about all the time and doesn't want to talk about. These are like distractions, and he's put them aside, and it's pretty impressive. It's, it's not easy. But to your point about having somebody – you know, to root against. I mean, I think at times it's good, it's good to have that. I mean, we when Tiger and Phil were going at it, I think there were Tiger people and Phil people. Um, VJ was a bit of a villain at times uh, when he was, you know, winning a lot, uh, you know, 10, 12 years ago. Um, I, 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 think, uh, I think it's good to have some tension, you know. I mean, there's been some charges lately that these guys are too buddy-buddy, that they're, that they're too friendly. You know, JT and Jordan Spieth and Ricky Fowler and Captain, those guys are they're, they're buddies. You know, they like to hang out. You know, obviously, they want to beat each other, but I think sometimes, you know, you like it when there's a little bit of coldness between, these, between the competitors. And so with Reed, he's giving us that. And, uh, you know, I don't like it for the reasons that have just come up. I think we had that before all this. You know, there, there's been a, a genuine sort of, People don't know how to react to it. You know, his Masters victory in 2018 was not all that popular. Um, you know, so um, I, I think that villain quality that you're talking about was sort of there, and now this rules thing has just, you know, enhanced it. 
Yeah, good call. Well, we'll move on. I got a couple more questions, then I'll let you go, Bob. Uh, we just finished this first event of the new year, the Century Tournament of Champions. And as we said, Reed was there in the playoff and then lost dramatically at the end to Justin Thomas, who you mentioned before, just got his 12th win on tour, surpassing Jordan Spieth as being the youngest guy with that many wins on tour. So I guess we've we've already kind of recapped that tournament in essence, let's go on to next week at the Sony Open in Maui. Thomas is going to be there. Reed's going to be there. The early odds that I read have those two as the top two odds-on picks to win it. Uh, give us a little bit of your own analysis about this next tournament coming up. Uh, maybe some of the favorites and maybe some of the, the dark horses or the long shots in your mind. And then give us a pick who you think is going to win this thing. question about the upcoming tour schedule i read a recent article that you submitted about tiger's potential landing spots and as of right now the only tournaments that he is firmly committed to are farmers insurance open at tory pines and then the one that he hosts at the genesis invitational which i'll be covering in la uh, what what do you see coming up for Tiger as far as potential landing spots? And then does he have a chance to win any of these upcoming tourneys in advance of the Masters? Or are these all just kind of opportunities to get his legs back under him and the majors are all that really matter? 
Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, you know, last year he didn't really contend in any of the events leading up to the Masters, uh, except for maybe, if you want to say, the match play, you know, where he made it to the quarterfinals um, and ended up tying for fifth. But obviously he didn't make it to the finals, so he, he was not there with a chance to win on Sunday. Um, uh, you know, I, I think the schedule is going to be very similar to what we saw leading up to the Masters last year. Last year he played Torrey, Riviera, Mexico. He, he, he was supposed to play Arnold Palmer, but skipped because he had a slight neck strain. It's, it'll be interesting to see, does he play it again? Will he play it? Because that's been a place where he's had a lot of success, but yet it didn't hurt him to not play it last year. Uh, the Players' Championship is the following week. So if he were to do what I just outlined, he'd be playing four times in five weeks. Does he want to do that? You know, maybe not. So maybe he skips Arnold Palmer. Um, and then, of course, I think he'll go back to the match play because that's two weeks before the Masters, and that's good prep. Uh, I think he likes to be competing two weeks out. So you're looking at five or six events before the Masters. Um, I think Torrey Pines is a hard place for him to win now. Maybe not in the summer when they play the U.S. Open there next year, but in the in the winter when it's damp, it's cool. Um, the that golf course is hard, very hard at this time of year. Uh, the rough is high. Uh, you know, I thought he played really, really hard last year to, to tie for twentieth. You know, now that doesn't mean he can't win there, um, but he's got to hit a lot of fairways and he's got a he's got potentially cool weather. You know, which is not good for his back. It's the same thing at Riviera, where he's never won. And, uh, you know, last year it was rainy, it was cold. Those are things that are not good for him. Uh, so, it would, you know, it would behoove him to get some good weather. I think that would help. Um, certainly he's capable, you know. He's capable of doing of winning these events. Uh, Mexico, um, will he even play there? I think he will. He tied the 10th there last year and not putting poorly and also as we found out later was not he was not in the best of health his neck was bothering him but i think that he doesn't want to skip world golf events at this point that's um that's a mistake because those are you know those are fields that are shorter and he's guaranteed a world ranking points and everything so i i think he'll go there and and certainly he can win at bay hill or the players he's proven it in the past um does he need to no but I think he wants to get in. I want. To, I think he wants to be competitive, and given the way he's played here at the end of 2019, you know, the the win in Japan, the uh, the Hero Tournament where he was in contention, the good play at the President's Cup, you know, it, it'll be interesting to see if he picks right back up where he left off. Uh, you know, can he sustain that high level of play? Well, that's all fair, and it seems like about what I would estimate myself. I got one final question for you, Bob golf related and then one more question after that personally to you the golf related question we've talked about olympics coming up around the corner this summer and i know i've seen some tweets and some article information written by you recently about olympic projections as of right now it would be four people from each country as far as where they stand in the world ranking points that are going to qualify to go to the Olympics. Give us a little bit about your sense of what it's going to take for anyone, let alone Tiger, who I believe is just outside of that top four right now as of this week, but what it's going to take for anyone to get into the Olympics this summer 
and then maybe a little bit about who you think are some of the trendy picks, not just for the U.S., but for Europe and some of the other countries that will probably be the most competitive over there as far as who you see going on, on, on these different teams. It's two per country, but up to four if you're in the top 15 in the world. Oh, okay, so, okay. So the, the reason that the Olympics are a bit odd is that is that you're competing against your own countrymen to get in. For example, you know, Tiger, Tiger's clearly going to be one of the top 10, 12 players in the world when the Olympics rolls around, and he might not be there because only four can go from the U.S. Like, for example, Martin Keimer, because he's from Germany, has a very, very good chance of making it to the Olympics because he's the top rated You know, and so... And so, like, in other words, if, if uh, uh, like, they, once, once the allotment of Americans is filled, then they go down the list to the next player who's not qualified. And if it happens to be a country like Sweden, for example, well, that guy might be the, you know, 27th ranked player in the world. That means that there's a chance for another person from Sweden, no matter where he's ranked, to go because they'll take two. So it's just very, you know, as, as long as as long as the field isn't filled yet. So it's a very volatile situation. In the case of the countries that have a lot of top-ranked players, like the U.S., like the U.K., um, uh, even Ireland, you know, it's it's much more competitive. Australia, uh, that that makes it that makes it uh, that much harder. South, you know, South Korea to some extent. Uh, so Tiger is fighting against, you know. Uh, Xander Shoffley against Patrick Cantley against Justin Thomas to some degree. I think I think Thomas is pretty much a lock. Um, you know, against you know DeChambeau, against Patrick Reed, uh, maybe Dustin Johnson. You know, as of right now, Ty, the way the world rankings look right now, Tiger is the fifth American, but it is really really close, and it's going to change a lot with with having all these high ranking events coming up. You've got. Uh, uh, two world golf events, three majors, the Players' Championship. There's six tournaments that right there with a lot of ranking points. For Tiger to make it, he's going to need some high finishes in these events. You know, because one of those guys is going to do something. Um, and it's hard to imagine, you know, like Brooks falling far enough, JT falling far enough. So he's almost fighting for two spots, really, um, among, among maybe six or seven players. Uh, and look, Shoffley has proven he's going to be there. Cantley's got a lot of game. Uh, Patrick Reed is playing well. Uh, Dustin Johnson, it seems, is going to turn it around again. That, that's who he's looking at having to beat, and it's going to be tough. I, uh, I think it would be great for the Olympics if he made it. And Tiger has said he wants to make it, he wants to do it. But now, does it become a priority to the point where he does things? to try to add tournaments or do what, you know, do things that might make it better for him to make it. Tiger's typically been winning takes care of everything. You know, playing well takes care of everything. I'm just going to try to play well and let it fall where it may. If he follows that, you know, what if he has a bad tournament or two? Does he then add something? It's going to be kind of fascinating to see how that unfolds, how hard he tries to make it. As far as other countries, you know, Rory's going to be there. Um... Uh, he's he's playing. You know, he has said he'll play for Ireland because he had a choice between Ireland and the UK. Uh, obviously, a guy like Shane Lowry for Ireland. Um, you know, the last time there was a lot of negativity surrounding it in 2016. I think that has changed. I think people saw 
how well it went off. I think some of the ones who passed on the chance who qualified maybe might regret it now. And so that's going to add a little bit more intrigue as well to see about if they can make it. See, I was about to say, the first Olympic golf tournament in, what, over 100 years, the gold medalist is Justin Rose, who I think people could have guessed had a chance to win. But then we got Thomas Peters at silver and then Kuchar at bronze. Those seem like very surprising people to be up on the medal podium in my estimate. So I guess any sexy picks on your end as far as who you could see running off with gold in this and is it somebody we haven't even considered that could potentially take this gold i mean certainly that's possible um you know because the the depth in in world golf is so strong right now but also you are going to see a lot of the top 25 players in the world there you know i mean it's not going to be all of them you know obviously there's going to be you know probably six or eight Americans in the top 25 who won't be there. Um, but you're going to have some highly ranked players. You know, Henrik Stenson, uh, you know, Kutcher, who finished third, would not have been in the Olympics the last time if, like, Jordan Spieth and Dustin Thomas hadn't, uh, excuse me, Jordan Spieth and uh, uh, Dustin uh, Johnson hadn't dropped out. You know, they were, they were the ones who had made it. They, they declined. They declined the chance to play. So, uh, you know, it went down a couple of spots and Kucher got in and he took advantage. But certainly, you know, there's guys like that who absolutely could, could do it. A guy like Cam Smith from Australia, if he goes to the Olympics, he's, you know, probably ranked 40th in the world or something like that. Absolutely he could win. You know, those guys will have been playing a lot of golf at that time. It's only two weeks after the Open. Um, their, their games will be in shape. And if they go there motivated, certainly any of them. And, and, and then the ones from the countries who it's, it's, it's a be-all, end-all to make it. Japan, for example. Hideki Matsuyama, you think he's not going to want to win gold medal in his, old, in his own country? And, in fact, the pressure might be intense yeah. <laughs> to get it done. You know, um, uh, a, lot of, a lot of countries like China, uh, Japan, South Korea now, you know, they've made... They, they gear their sports for people making the Olympics, and that's as big of a deal to them as winning a major. So I think you'll see some of that as well. I think it has a chance to be really great. Well, I'm definitely looking forward to it, and I appreciate all of this in-depth analysis from you, Bob. Final questions. These are personal ones. That's a two-sided question. My friend Michael Whalen, who I just wrote a big profile about for From the Back Tees, who was one of the architects at Golf Channel, said that the question that he wished every interviewer would ask anyone they interviewed of note is, what is your biggest regret throughout the course of your career, or if you have no regrets from your career, what is your biggest regret from your life? So I'm hitting you with the hardball last. Then the flip side is, do you have any aspirations that you'd still love to see fulfilled? And if so, what is your biggest wish as far as what you wish you could accomplish still going forward? I think I can answer that, both of them in the same. And it's that I haven't written a book and that I would like to write a book. Like, you know, I think I, I sort of rue that I haven't gone down that path yet. You know, I've had probably opportunities that I, that I, that I didn't seize or didn't, didn't push hard enough. But yet I still think the opportunity exists, and I'd really like to do that still. So I think that's, like, you know, two answers in one there. I, 
Uh, that that's my biggest regret, and and yet it's one that I still aspire to do. It's mine too, Bob. You just nailed me in one one take there as well. That is my biggest regret, and I promised myself this the year I'm going to write it. All right, we'll get cracking on it together then, both of us. Let's get moving, man. I think you've got a little more on your plate than me, but I think this is a good year to get started on writing that book. I just saw somebody with some great advice on that. Uh, write 500 words a day, four days a week. Uh, take the fifth day to edit it, and in 50 weeks you'll have 100,000 words. Wow. You right? So there you go. <laughs> Boy, you just put me on the path. I'm going to go write 500 words as soon as we get off this phone call. Well, Bob Herrig from ESPN, thank you so much for taking this hour to talk with us. Um, Any final shout-outs or anything you'd like to publicize about yourself, please go ahead now and do that. I guess all I would just say is keep coming back to ESPN.com. You know, there's a lot of content that we'll be having there, especially now that the golf season's gotten going. And uh, I appreciate the opportunity to chat with you today. Thank you. All right, buddy. Thank you very much. Do appreciate it. Bob Herrig, every. Thank you for listening to From the Back Tees. Toward the hole, and it's in with 30. We hope you enjoyed today's show. For more information and updates, Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at From the Back Tees. I'm going to enjoy it for the rest of my life. See you next week. Be the ball, man.